0: Let me ask you to take out your Bibles and to open with me to the book of Exodus in chapter 3. The book of Exodus in chapter 3. Uh, though it's only been two weeks since we were last in Exodus, 40 years have now passed in the life of Moses. Uh, for 40 years he has been in Midian, He has a wife, Zipporah, two sons, Gershom and Eliezer. When we left him, while we had met Gershom, Eliezer is new to us. He was born during this time. Moses has been shepherding the sheep of his father in law, Jethro. The man that we met back in chapter 2, who acted passionately and recklessly and Murdering an Egyptian taskmaster has now settled in to a more domesticated kind of life. Every indication is that Moses was planning to live out his life here in Midian. He's now 80 years old. He's, he's no young buck anymore. May already have grandkids. We're, we're not sure how old Gershom uh, is and whether he's married or not. But all indications are that Moses is is planning on staying here in Midian for the rest of his life until suddenly something happens that changes his life forever. Uh, I want to warn us up front that Exodus chapter 3 is a chapter that God has used over and over again in the history of the world to turn the lives of people upside down. It is a special passage. It is a special place in the Word of God. And I pray that God will do much as we spend uh, at least three or four weeks in this powerful, wonderful chapter. This morning we're going to read the first six verses, the first six verses of Exodus chapter 3. And here is what we read. Remember, this is the very word of God. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God, And the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Now, before we get into any of the particulars of this passage, we need to observe the main truth that we see. What is the big picture of this passage? And the big picture is that Moses was simply going about his daily life when God broke into it. Everything else that is going to happen, from this point until the people of Israel enter the promised land, it all began with this event. Here is where the dominoes start falling. And how does it all begin? With God revealing Himself to Moses. The great truth that we see in this passage is the truth of revelation. We can put it this way we cannot know God, we cannot have a relationship with God, we cannot know how to obey God if He does not reveal Himself. To us, We cannot know Him. We cannot have a relationship with Him. We cannot live for Him or be a part of His great mission if He doesn't make Himself known. In our passage, Moses is already a believer in the true God. He learned about the true God from his parents, Amram and Jochebed. Moses' second son, Eliezer, was given that name because his name means help of God. And Moses says in Exodus 18, the God of my father was my help. And so the parents of Moses were people of faith in the true God. And they influenced Moses, even though he was raised in the courts of Egypt. He had interaction with his parents, especially in the early years, but perhaps even in his teenage and older years. And even now, living with Jethro, his father-in-law, a Midianite priest, we've discussed already, we've seen that he knew the true God. And so don't read this passage as if Moses is an unconverted man, And then suddenly God speaks to him and this is Moses' conversion experience. That's that's not the case at all. Hebrews 11 tells us, Moses had faith before this day. But how does an unbeliever come to know the true God? And how does a believer come to know God's will? And what God would have you do or what God would have me do? And the answer is the same. God must reveal Himself. And He must reveal His will. Church, every part of the Christian life, from its beginning to its end, is based on revelation. God must reveal Himself to the unbeliever he must reveal the gospel. He must reveal the way of salvation. He must open the eyes of the unbeliever to see the glory of Christ. And then, after through revelation that person is converted, it is through revelation that that converted person knows now how to live, what to do, who to be. There is both general and special revelation. General revelation is the kind of revelation that everybody has, where the the way that God has revealed Himself to every person on planet Earth. Romans one verses nineteen through twenty, speaking about all humanity, says, "For what can be known about God is plain to them." Meaning, there's something that can be known about God, and number two, it's plain to them. And the them here is the whole world, all mankind. God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and His divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. And so whether we're speaking about primitive peoples in Southeast Asia, tent dwellers in the Middle Eastern deserts, or the most progressive, civilized Western European peoples, they all have this in common. God has spoken to them through His world, through His work, through His handiwork, through creation. He has spoken in a way that everyone can understand and in such a way that every person is accountable for what they have heard. The heavens declare the glory of God. But beyond this general revelation, there is what we call special revelation. And this is supernatural revelation. This is where God communicates directly to the human mind or the human heart. In the past, sometimes through dreams, sometimes through vision, most often through speech. Mount Hermon, we can learn something of God from creation. But we can never learn enough from creation to be saved. And we can never learn enough from examining the birds of the air and the trees in the forest and bass fishing or sitting in our deer stands that we will never learn enough in that situation to know the will of God for our lives. We need something more. We need God to speak to us as He did to Moses. I wonder if you know this about yourself. Do you know how badly you need God to speak to you. Are you aware of how deeply you need Him to speak to you? Well, Thankfully, God has spoken. I wonder, as you read this text, are you envious of Moses? Do you maybe think, I wish God would speak to me like He did to Moses. Friends, God has spoken to you. And He continues to speak by His Spirit as you encounter His Word in the Bible. Stephen Lawson has said many times, if you want to hear the audible voice of God, read your Bible out loud. The Bible is the very Word of God. And through the truths of the Scriptures, God has interrupted many a life. Through the truths of this book, God has radically changed the lives of millions and set them on a path they never expected to be on. If God chose to speak through burning bushes to everybody, there would be burning bushes everywhere. But He hasn't chosen to do that. This is our burning Bush, And through the Bible, God calls out to us. And through the Bible, God tells us His will for our lives. And so I simply say, if you want to encounter God the way Moses did, if you want to hear Him speak and stand on holy ground, then humble your heart, lower yourself in your own eyes, sit at the feet of Jesus and learn from the pages of the Bible. Now, having seen this main truth of revelation and how important it is for God to speak to us, I want to draw your attention to two related truths. Two truths that relate to this idea of revelation. First, I want you to see in this passage that whenever God calls a person, He does so through revelation. When God calls someone, He calls them through revelation. Or to put it differently, when God calls a person, He speaks to them. This is what we have here in Exodus chapter 3. This is the calling experience of Moses, in which Moses is called to be the Savior of Israel. And how is Moses called to this role? God speaks to him. Because that's what the word call means, right? If I'm going to, to call you for some purpose, I have to open my mouth, I have to speak. Supper time, my, my family's sick today. Normally, Jonathan would be right there. Uh, supper time, Jonathan, time for supper. You guys don't yell across your house, do you? Right? But I, 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 I yell, time to come, and, and I call. Right? I, I speak, I, I call, and he comes. And so it is with God. When he calls someone, he speaks to them. And I'm here not just talking about God's word written on the pages of the Bible. When God calls someone, he speaks to them in a supernatural way. In a, in a mysterious way, God speaks to the heart of a person. His written word is a part of that, but there's a a spiritual element to it. God is spirit, and you have a spirit. And when God calls somebody, His spirit speaks to that person's spirit. And so, for example, consider the call to ministry. We know from 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, that part of what is required to be a minister is an inward desire. Peter tells us that ministers are to serve willingly, not under compulsion. There's to be a desire in the heart of the minister to minister. Yes, Jeremiah was a reluctant prophet. But after God had called him, Jeremiah had a fire in his bones that he had to let out. Even Moses is going to be reluctant at first, and we're going to see it. But after God continues to speak to the soul of Moses, he's going to be transformed from a, no God, don't make me do this, no God, don't make me do this, no God, don't make me do this, to Pharaoh, let God's people go. And we're going to see him change. What does it mean to be called to a ministry? God must speak to your very soul so that you have this burning desire to do the thing that God has called you to do. There's more to it than that, but there's surely not less to it than that. A minister is not a minister simply because a church puts him in that office. A minister isn't a minister simply because he agrees to serve. A minister is called of God when God has spoken to his heart in such a way that he rightly desires to shepherd the people of God, to care for them, feed them, protect them. Maybe there's someone here who are considering the call to be a pastor or a missionary and you've wondered, how would I know if I am called of God? We pray all the time that God would raise up pastors and missionaries from our church. But let me be honest. If you can do anything else, you probably should. You probably should. One evidence that a person has been called to the ministry is that God has spoken to their soul in such a way that they are gripped by the desire to speak God's truth. They are inwardly compelled. Saul of Tarsus on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians. Jesus breaks into his life with a dual calling. Paul's calling to salvation And his calling to ministry came at the same time. And for the rest of his life, Paul could not help but speak God's word. Paul said, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. In my case, I remember very precisely where I was when I sensed with an overwhelming sense that I was being called to the ministry. And I knew I could do nothing else with the rest of my life. Just as Moses would never be able to deny from this day forward what God had spoken to him, what God had called him to do. Every true minister of God knows that feeling. Now, certainly if God has spoken to your soul and called you to ministry, there will be more than just this inward compulsion. God will use His church to confirm your calling. 1 Timothy 3 says that ministers are to be tested to make sure they are qualified before they are put into office. So there's more to it than just the inward call, but the inward call must be there. There must be this supernatural calling from the Spirit of God to the Spirit of the person. Even more importantly, though, this is how God saves people. It's not just how He calls someone to ministry. This is how God calls someone out of darkness and brings them into the kingdom of light. God speaks to them in power. There has never been a Christian who became a Christian apart from God speaking to their very soul. If you're a Christian, you've had a burning bush experience. If you're a Christian, God has spoken to you in a way that was deep weighty, you may not can even point to the day it happened. (laughs) You may not be able to name the day or the hour. But you know God has spoken to you and He has called you. Yes, God speaks through His Word in the pages of the Bible, but as that Word is read, as that Word is preached, as that Word is sung, as that Word is heard, God effectually calls people to Himself. Christ, by His Spirit, speaks to a person's heart. Calls them by name. Moses! Moses! You are called. Jesus says, I know my own. I call them by name. They come to me. I emphasize this because it must be emphasized. It is in the grip of the powerful call of God that people come to Christ. Salvation is not some human thing. Where we just casually choose, I think I'll try and be a Christian for a while. Christianity is not, well, I think I'll make God my God today. You don't make God anything, He must call us to be His. Salvation always begins with His initiative, His calling. We're going through our life, and He speaks. He interrupts our lives. He, he puts us on a completely different path than we were before. We're never the same afterwards. Many of you know my, my love for Martin Lloyd-Jones and how increasingly over the last few years he's become one of my heroes in the faith. Back in the 1950s, Billy Graham brought one of his evangelistic crusades to London. And this is where Lloyd-Jones was was pastor in London. And Graham asked Lloyd-Jones not only to serve with this evangelistic crusade, he actually asked Lloyd-Jones to lead the committee to put together the evangelistic crusade in in London. But Lloyd-Jones said he could not do it. Every other evangelical leader in London that Graham asked to be a part came to be a part. But Lloyd-Jones said he could not take part in this crusade. Years later, in the summer of 1963, Lloyd-Jones and Billy Graham spent three hours together in the foyer of of Lloyd-Jones' church. Graham was asking Lloyd-Jones, would he not come and and be a part of the work that Graham was seeking to do in London? Lloyd-Jones told Graham he could only support the Crusades on two conditions, First, he asked that Graham would stop putting Roman Catholics and liberals up on the platform during his crusades. Um, At the crusades, Graham would often have men who denied the inerrancy of Scripture up on the platform, even leading in the services. Lloyd-Jones said he could not conscientiously support that. But second, he told Billy Graham that as long as he continued to use this invitation system in which people were simply told to choose Christ, he could not be a part. Why? Why was Lloyd-Jones so against the invitation system that Graham was using? Well, for one, Lloyd-Jones argued, as the Puritans had before him, that true conversion never consists of simply a person deciding to follow Jesus. He, He liked to use the word fly. He said, when you come to Christ, you don't decide to come to Jesus. You fly to Jesus. There's no rational... It's not like choosing Coke or Pepsi. It's like Lot and his family fleeing Sodom and Gomorrah. It's not some casual thing. But even more than that, Lloyd-Jones believed that decisionism made it appear that salvation was simply something done by our own initiative. Graham would be up on the stage saying, won't you come, won't you come? And people would decide, oh God, I'll come. And everything seemed to depend on whether or not you would choose to come. The picture seemed to be one of God waiting for you, hoping you would make the wise choice. God God is passive. You're active. Will you do the right thing? It's your choice. But this was not how Lloyd-Jones saw salvation in the Scriptures. He argued that people are converted when God breaks into their lives with His very Word and calls them to Himself in a way that they cannot help but come to Him. Salvation doesn't hinge on some decision that a person makes. It hinges on God's effectual call speaking into their lives in a way that radically alters them when in the Gospel of John group. We saw this in John chapter 1, that, that people become children of God, not of the will of man, not of the will of flesh, but of God. Our very hearts must be changed by the Word of God. I reference all that about Lloyd Jones and Billy Graham because I thought it was interesting. On the night that Billy Graham began his London crusade, Lloyd Jones preached to his congregation from Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And his whole emphasis was on this God must reveal himself savingly to a person's heart. And when he does this, that person is forever changed. That person suddenly finds himself interested in the things of God. He he never used to be interested in the things of God. That person suddenly finds himself not merely choosing God, but, but crying out to God. As God spoke to Moses out of the burning bush, so God speaks the gospel of Jesus Christ, and He radically transforms people. They are born again. They are made new creations. And if you're here this morning and you're wondering, how does somebody become a Christian? Let me give you the most fundamental biblical answer. It's this, you must be born again. How do I become a Christian? You must be born again. You must be made brand new by the Spirit of God. A baby doesn't decide to be born So also a baby Christian doesn't come about by their own will. A baby Christian is born of the seed of the Word of God. It is an act of God. And therefore, if you long to be a Christian, if you long to be saved, the best thing you can do is spend time encountering the Word of God. Read the Bible. Come to preaching. Give attention to the Word. I dare say that anyone who comes to the word of God with humility, longing to be transformed by it, will find that God will speak to their hearts in power and make them new. Louis Jones said this, this work is the work of the Holy Spirit and it is his work alone. No one else can do it. The true work of conviction of sin and of regeneration and the giving of the gift of faith in new life, it is solely the work of the Holy Spirit. And if it is His work, it is always a thorough work and it is always a work that will show itself. Now very quickly, let me draw your attention to a second truth taught in this passage connected to this idea of revelation and God revealing Himself. And it's this. Sometimes God uses the miraculous to draw our attention to Him and His Word. Sometimes God uses the miraculous to draw attention to Him and His Word. Moses shepherding these sheep like he did the day before, like he's going to do tomorrow. It's an ordinary day. And all of a sudden, something extraordinary happens. Here is this bush and it's it's burning. And we're told the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses and and the form that the angel of the Lord took was this form of fire in the bush. The fire is in the midst of the bush. The bush is ablaze, but it's not being burned up. It's not being consumed. And this grips the attention of Moses. This is a supernatural phenomenon. What's happening here? And it was through this miraculous moment that God gripped Moses' attention to draw attention not to the bush, but to what God had to say. What was more important here, the bush or the words that were to come from the bush? What was to be the center of Moses' attention? Was he to be captivated by the bush or was he to be captivated by what God had to say from the bush? Yes, the bush was fascinating. It was something amazing, miraculous, worthy of Moses' attention. But this passage isn't about how Moses took out his scientific equipment and studied the bush. The whole point of the miracle was to draw attention to the word that God had to say. The miraculous bush only served to draw Moses' attention to the word of God, it put Moses in an alert state, his attention captured. That is important because all over our world today, this truth is being distorted. Especially when we look at what is happening in South America and some parts of Africa and certainly in other churches here and there around the world. There are many churches teaching a kind of Christianity where the miraculous is the main thing. There are many, I don't know if you know this church, there are churches all around the world where people are being drawn in not to hear the Word of God, but to see the latest sign or the latest wonder. When I was in Romania in May, I had many conversations with Pastor Adrian Barzo about what was happening in Romania through the charismatic movement and the irreparable damage that was being done. He said people all over our country are being duped They're being taken advantage of. Men greedy for money are using all kinds of supposedly miraculous signs. Every church promising the next healing service, the next miracle that's going to happen so that people will come and men can take advantage of them for their own greed. And he said it's ruining the name of Christianity in Romania. Some of you guys listen to the White Horse Inn podcast, hear about what's happening in in Brazil and pastor said it used to be a few years ago where if he needed to rent an apartment they would say he would say I'm I'm a pastor and they'd say oh we don't need any references from you you know usually you go to get an apartment they ask for two or three references they say if I say I'm a pastor they used to say I don't need a reference from you he said now if I go and say that I need to rent an apartment they'll say we need 10 references from you because pastors now are known as swindlers in Brazil because they've used signs and wonders theology to dupe people, and to take advantage of people. Friends, to make Christianity about signs and wonders is to completely miss the point. The point was what God had to say. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Miracles have never been commonplace in the history of the world. Miracles have tended to happen at special moments when God was speaking in an unusual way and the miracles served to to draw the attention of people to the words that God had to say. Moses is going to confront the, the magicians of Pharaoh. We're going to see lots of miracles in the next few chapters. But what's it about? It's about God and His Word. We're going to see this later in the Old Testament with with Elijah and Elisha. They're, They're performing miracles. Why? To draw attention to the truth of God. Certainly with Jesus and the apostles. The miracles were there to draw attention to the gospel they came to preach. I certainly believe God still does miracles today. I think it's particularly true on the mission field, frontier missions, where the gospel is reaching places where it's never gone before. And I certainly think there are times when God heals people in response to the prayers of his people. We ought not to fail to praise God when he does something miraculous among us. But let us remember that these are never the main thing. The miracles of God are meant to draw us to who he is and what he has to say to us. The word of God is better than gold and sweeter than honey. <laughs> how foolish it would be to go to a sign and to spend all day looking at the sign rather than going to where the sign points. There's a reason miracles in the Bible are called signs. You're not supposed to stay at the sign. You're supposed to go to where it points. It is the Word of God that satisfies. It is the Word of God that saves. And so I close with this. I hope you see how important this truth of revelation is. God doesn't owe us to speak to us. God doesn't owe you to speak through His creation. God doesn't owe me to speak through His Word. It is the mercy of God that He has chosen to speak to us. And if we are Christians, we ought to be eternally thankful that God interrupted our lives and spoke to us. But here's my question. Do you know the Savior that Moses knew? Because you see, this passage says it was the angel of the Lord that spoke to Moses out of this bush. And I'm going to argue next week that that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope I'm going to do more than argue it. I hope I'm going to prove it to you. This is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking to Moses out of this bush. And this is not the the last time Moses will have encounters with the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you know that Old Testament saints are saved the same way New Testament saints are saved? By believing in the Messiah. Moses, though he didn't have half the information you have, though he didn't know half the gospel story that we know, Moses believed in the Messiah. He believed in the Savior. And this is what transformed his life. Has that happened to you? Has God spoken to you in such a way that you've seen the glory of Jesus and you've been willing to to turn from your sins and to give your life to Him and to say, wherever you lead, Lord, I will follow you. Does the Lord Jesus Christ have your allegiance? And is, is He the Savior of your soul? All right, we'll look at the details of this passage next week, but I thought it was worth the whole sermon to emphasize how important it is that God has spoken to you. Has it happened? Has he spoken to your soul? Have you been made a new creation? Pray you have. Let's pray.